When Martin Luther advocated for the concept of sola scriptura, the teaching that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture, he never imagined it would unleash the radical Reformation, which rejected the previous 1,500 years of Christian thought. Using new and untested methods of reading Scripture, the radical Reformers introduced dangerous new concepts, like the idea that all soldiers were doomed to hell since they were unwilling to turn the other cheek. Luther immediately saw the damage these teachings could do, so continually outlined the good and holy work done by government, the military, and others tasked with keeping order. When Luther addressed the Beatitudes in a series of sermons in 1531, he spent a lot of time untangling the confusion around Christ's teaching found in the Beatitudes to help make his position clear that secular work could be just as holy as the work of any priest. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. All right, well... This is the second episode on the Beatitudes. Uh, last time, we talked about uh, the background of Luther's commentary in a little bit of detail. So if you, we touched on it in that opening, but we have more background in the previous episode. Um, and we also talked about the first three of the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. So we've covered, Blessed are the spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And today we'll continue, that is our anticipation, with the Beatitudes today. And like last week, we had a beer from the Upper Hand Brewery. Again, a beer from the Upper Hand Brewery, and we'll feature that in our beer break. That's right. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, before we start, let's quickly uh, review the purpose of Luther's commentary. Uh, now, the, the medieval Roman Catholic Church recognized the difficulty of living according to the Beatitudes. So it had really just reduced them to just suggestions for, for the most holy Christian, for hyper-Christianity. So if you really wanted to be a Christian, then you should go in some seclusion and live a private contemplative life attempting to carry out the Beatitudes. Luther didn't like that idea because he thought that the gospel equips us to live in the world. And then then we have the radical reformation that comes along, like the Anabaptists, who said they the, uh, that these were laws. So on the one hand, you have their suggestions. On the other hand, you say these people who are saying that they're laws from Christ. So Christians had to follow them. This meant that Christians couldn't be wealthy or judges or rulers or, or anything else that didn't perfectly align with the Beatitudes. And that term radical reformation, it's kind of a technical term that's used by historians as they evaluate what's going on in the six. 16th century, you'll have the Reformation, that's usually referring to Luther and Lutherans. Then you'll have the Reformed Reformation, that's going to be looking at John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, and which would be modern-day Presbyterians in the Reformed Church. And then the Radical Reformation, which would be the Anabaptists, which they're modern-day Amish, Mennonites, and then Shakers, Quakers. Sh- Shakers, the Quakers, the and also then a little bit would lead into that, um, the Baptist. But the Baptist movement, for the most part, is an outgrowth of the Reformed Revolution. So we say Anabaptist. We're referring to something that's different than the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention. Right, right. This is a 
I, I think even by today's standards, a little bit more radical than, than mainline Christianity is today. So Luther, in his commentary, is trying to place the Beatitudes into the central vocational life of every Christian and not make it a suggestion that's only applicable for the really holy or like the Anabaptists and the Radical Refusion, make it something that is an inviolable law that all have to do, otherwise they're failures. So as Luther tries to to thread the needle here uh, between the radical reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, he ends up doing a great job outlining his two kingdoms uh, theology. Yeah, so you got the kingdom of sword, the the left-hand kingdom where God works and governs through the law in the government that he has established and instituted for the good and the protection of the people that he has created. And then you have the right-hand kingdom, uh, the kingdom of the spirit that is governed by the gospel that's located in the church. Okay, so now that we have the background, and again, if you want to get more background, you can go listen to the previous episode, but let's start diving into the Beatitudes. So the next of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So this is the first point, the, the first point that Luther makes is that there are two kinds of righteousness. The first righteousness uh, is, is ours through Christ, Through no work of our own, Luther says this is not the righteousness that Christ is talking about here. So that would be the passive righteousness that we receive as a gift through the grace of Christ. But he's saying that what this beatitude is referring to is the act of righteousness that we do. So Christ says, uh, so Luther says that the man is righteous and blessed who continually works and strives with all of his might to promote the general welfare and the proper behavior of everyone. One way, Mike, to think about the distinction between these two righteousness is to have a vertical arrow for that passive righteousness that we receive through Christ, the forensic declaration of justification. You are righteous through your faith in Christ. It's that, that external righteousness that Christ gives to us. It's not anything having to do with us. We have nothing to contribute to this this equation. This is a righteousness that comes down from God, from Christ, through the work of Christ to us. And Lutherans love talking about that kind of righteousness. And sometimes to the criticism where people don't think we care about how people behave with their neighbor. Right but here, Luther is very clear that every Christian should have a hunger, a thirst, a desire for the good of your neighbor. That there is something about that station that God has given to you that you should do it for the benefit of others. So one of the big things in Lutheran theology is the holiness of this 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 work that we do. It's not like the sacred is good and the secular is ordinary and bad. Right. Which would be kind of what's going on in the Roman Catholic Church during Luther's time. If you're a monk, you're good. If you're not a monk, you're still okay, but you're not as good as a monk. And and even in the general population, most people have this hard line between the sacred and the secular. Lutheran theology does not recognize that line at all. All things are sacred through the promise of God at work in the world. So if you're a husband or a wife, you're you're looking to you're trying to fulfill your role as best you can for the benefit of the other. If you're in a position of authority, you, you want to fulfill those responsibilities of office, and Luther uses the words diligently, carefully, and faithfully. 
And if you're under the authority of somebody else, Luther says we should render their due service and obedience to them faithfully and willingly. So there, all of these are, are activities. We are all under authority. We, and many of us, most of us, I would say, either as a father or whatever, mother, what most people have some level of authority. The, ex, the exercise of that authority is holy if it is done in faith. And you should do that exercise of authority with the ambition that the righteousness of God would be experienced in the world. Right. And, and so kind of a little swipe at the monks. He says, the command to you is not to crawl into a corner or into the desert, but to run out of it, if that's where you have been, and to offer your hands and your feet and your whole body to wager everything you have and can do. He, he even describes that those who would do that, to go out into the desert and live a private contemplative life, he says they are counterfeit saints. Because of their great sanctity, they forsake the world and run into the desert. They sneak away into a corner somewhere, and they try to escape the trouble and worry that they would otherwise have in the world to have to bear. The idea is they want to escape the suffering of the world and find some sort of pure enclave where they can find the righteousness of God. And he says, leave that idea and instead go into a world where there will be suffering, and you have to bear the burdens of one another, and you have to work. In Luther's thought, the the monks who who go off and hide from others are that is the the height of selfishness. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, where you are no longer there is no when you talk about the cross, right? You have the vertical the dimension and the horizontal dimension where there is no horizontal dimension. All you do is you have that vertical dimension. And Luther says that is unbelievable selfishness. Or and over and over again, he he's, he'll he'll and he actually does say it. Some yeah, he says that the shameful, proud, and self-sufficient spirits are tickled, pleased, and overjoyed over the fact that other people are not pious, whereas they ought to pity them, sympathize with them, and help them. All they can do is despise, slander, and judge and condemn everyone else. So this becomes kind of like your litmus test. Are you someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Then you should be seeking with sympathy and care the growth of those around you. If you don't have it, you are tickled pink when those around you are less holy than you. So going on, Luther talks about as you go to work, he says you should be the kind of man who is firm in the face of firmness, who will not let himself be frightened off or dumbfounded or overcome by the world's ingratitude or malice, who will always hold on and push with all the might he can summon. So what Luther is getting there, he's, he's talking about we are sent out into the world. We're going to run into problems. We're going to we're going to sin as we as we struggle against these others who are against us. And you're not going to be able to make the world completely pious through your hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but do what you can. Then Luther, he doesn't expect anybody to succeed. So he finishes off saying, if you cannot make the world completely pious, then do what you can. It is enough that you have done your duty and have helped a few, even if it be only one or two. So where the mistake happens sometimes and why Lutherans want to make the distinction between these two kinds of righteousness is your hunger and thirst for the general welfare and care of the people around you is not not what saves you. You are saved through that passive righteousness that you receive in Christ. When people attach salvation to how many righteous deeds they do for their neighbor, that's 
That's problematic. That's problematic. And that's probably why sometimes Lutherans get the accusation of not caring about the righteousness of the people around it, because we're so keen on maintaining a distinction between justification and sanctification. And, and it's actually this, 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 the kingdom of the spirit versus the kingdom of the sword, kingdom of the spirit is a really good way to outline that. Yeah. The kingdom of the spirit is our is where our, our justification is found. The kingdom of the sword is where we go out and work and and we take we take that sword occasionally. And it's not in the kingdom of the spirit you're righteous in the kingdom of the sword throw off all inhibitions and just be as unrighteous as you want because you can always run back to the kingdom of the spirit. Right. No, righteousness exists in exactly. both one through the gospel and one through our care for our neighbor. We get to now move on to our next beatitude. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Now in this one, Luther starts off by saying this is an outstanding fruit of faith. Anyone who is supposed to help other people and to contribute to the common weal and success should also be kind and merciful. That that contributing to the common weal and success are like judges, anybody who's participating in the organization of society. And then he talks, and that includes people in the religious realm who yeah. also are. And then he talks about one of the virtues of counterfeit sanctity is that it cannot have pity or mercy for the frail and weak, but insists on the strictest enforcement and the purest selection. As soon as there is even a minor flaw, all mercy is gone and there is nothing but fuming and fury. There should be room in the life of a Christian for forbearance. To have that moment of pause of patience to see how can I exercise true justice and still show mercy. Um, so he then quotes St. Gregory. And this is something that may sound strange to modern ears, but Luther will also often move from the scriptures into the early church fathers to show that there is continuity with what he is teaching. And so just as he talked about that counterfeit sanctity, he then quotes St. Gregory saying, true justice shows mercy, but false justice shows indignation. True holiness is merciful and sympathetic, but all that false holiness can do is rage and fume. And then he says, and, and yet it does so as they boast out of a zeal of justice or zeal for justice. That is, it is done through a love and zeal for righteousness. And, and Luther has no time for this. This is a tension of, I've got the kingdom of the spirit where the gospel is at work. I know I'm receiving the mercy of God and I'm sent out into this world through the kingdom of the sword. How, how quickly should I strike with the sword? Um, should I just quickly enact ju judgment and, and swipe with the sword everyone who does wrong and, and at the slightest indignation rage and, and raise a rumpus? Or as I demand justice, should there be room for mercy? And, and so Luther says, you know, he, he talks about uh, at the at the very end, he goes, now, if anyone will not let himself be moved by this wonderful and comforting promise, let him turn the page and hear another judgment. Woe and curses upon the unmerciful, for no mercy shall be shown to them. And then he goes on. At the present time, the world is full of such people among the nobles and city people and the peasants who sin very grievously against the dear gospel. Not only do they refuse to give support or help to our poor ministers and preachers, but besides, they commit theft and torment against it wherever they can and act as if they meant to starve it out and chase it out of the world. Now, this is where we really get a sense of 
you know, where his, when he's thinking about this, he's thinking about the poor ministers. And in this era, there were a lot of Lutheran pastors who were basically because the Lutherans took away all the political power of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, and they, they rejected all of that and all the, all all the things that that entailed, being able to slap people around because they didn't do what you wanted them to do. So what are the threats that the church now holds are no longer found in the exercise of the sword, but entirely in the exercise of the law and the gospel. And But you have some pastors, you have some churches that may be trying to exercise that power of the sword. And well, what I'm hearing here is that there are these ministers who are faithful ministers doing the right thing, and now the princes and the peasants, everybody is is just ignoring them. Now that the now that now that the Roman the, the power of the Roman Catholic Church has been pulled away from the, the this region, now these poor ministers are poor and starving and barely able to make ends meet. And and it's been you know, and this is something he, he brings up over and over again through his writings. So as we go through our daily vocation, we should still have mercy for those. Yeah. that are around us whose vocation is to share the gospel. Right. right. All right. We're going to move now to our next beatitude. Blessed are those of a pure heart, for they shall see God. So Luther begins this by complaining about the Roman Catholic Church, which is not unusual. Uh, and he says they've completely obscured the meaning of a pure heart by saying it referred to the monks and nuns. So he begins his, his discussion by defining some terms. Luther says a pure heart is a heart that is watching and pondering what God says and replacing its own ideas with the word of God. So uh, All Saints Day is the day that we're recording this in the epistle lesson. Today was 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And in verse 3 of that chapter in 1 John, John writes that uh, we are purified as the one who hopes in the, the one who is pure. As we hope in Christ, his purity then is brought to us. And, and, and we what, replace our own ideas with the purity of his ideas. And, and what is that? That hope is, is called faith. Yeah. And, and so that's, I, I was actually talking with somebody about that recently. And was saying that is a, Luther likes to use the term, that's a thunderbolt from God. That this is a, this is faith. That, that that gives us the purity. It's not through our works. It's through faith. That gives us. So blessed are those of a pure heart is going to be pushing us to find purity, not in our works, but in the word of God. So Luther then gives an example and he says, therefore, though a common laborer, a shoemaker or a blacksmith may be dirty and sooty and smell because he is covered with dirt and pitch. Still, he may sit at home and think my God has made me a man. He has given me my house wife and child, and has commanded me to love them and to support them with my work. Note that he is pondering the word of God in his heart, and though he stinks outwardly, inwardly he is pure incense before God. So that purity of heart comes through the residency of the word of God in our lives. Luther says this first part is to consider the law of God, but there's an even higher purity possible in the gospel. He writes, But if he attains the highest purity, so that he also takes hold of the gospel and believes in Christ, without this, that purity is impossible, then he is pure completely, inwardly his heart toward God and outwardly toward everything under him on earth. Then everything he is, 
and does his walking, standing, eating, and drinking is pure for him, and nothing can make him impure. So if we have faith in the gospel and try to understand God's plan for us by loving our neighbor, by contemplating the law, we are doing both, and everything we do will be pleasing to God. But then Luther has some pretty tough words for those folks who are trying to make themselves holy through their works. And he says, he says on the other hand, if the most austere Carthusian, and these Carthusians are... It's an order of monks that will uh, bring great punishment to themselves by uh, punishing the outward self. They hope to bring expression to how much they're willing to suffer for Christ. And he goes, some, some austere Carthusian fasts and whips himself to death if he does nothing but weep out of sheer devotion, if he never gives the world a thought and yet lacks faith in Christ and love for his neighbor, he is nothing but a stench and a pollution, inwardly and outwardly, so that both God and the angels find him abhorrent and disgusting. Now, one thing that we highlighted in the last episode is how in the Sermons on the Mount that Luther has, the series of sermons that he's using to give expression to the Beatitudes, he'll talk about the Jews. And for instance, in this one of the Beatitudes, he writes, let us understand correctly then what Christ calls a pure heart. Note again that the target and object of this sermon were principally the Jews. They did not want to suffer, but sought a life of ease, pleasure and joy. They did not want to hunger nor be merciful, but to be smug in their exclusive piety while they judged and despised other people. That sounds harsh. And uh, without some context, it's anti-Semitic. It's saying as a whole class of people, Jews are lazy and extravagant. So I want to put this into some context. Luther is writing about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has gone up to a mountain to teach his disciples. And he is teaching his disciples uh, what it means to be blessed. And he's placing in contrast to this blessing that he is advocating for, in contrast to that, would be the outward superficiality of the external piety of the Pharisees. The Pharisees live with this constant outward expression of purity, but they do not care for what is going on in their heart. So in volume 21, and in a lot of Luther's writings, as he writes about the Jews, he's often writing about this category of the self-indulgent Pharisee. It it does happen, though. In the later Luther, in his writings of 1537 and later, he does get some uh, yeah. tough words on the Jews that... Uh, that Lutherans to this day are embarrassed about. And actually, Lutherans of his era were embarrassed by those same comments. But at least here in volume 21, when you read about him saying the target and object of this sermon were principally the Jews, he's writing about uh, not his sermon that he's preaching that is in this commentary. He's talking about the sermon that Jesus is preaching against the Pharisees. Right, right. So, so going back to this, and it's, you know, the Luther was talking a moment ago, we were talking about the Carthusians and how they hope to pull themselves out of society and become holier than anybody. Luther talks about, the next thing he talks about is he talks about a judge who has to condemn a man to death and thus sheds blood and defiles himself with it. A monk would regard this as an abominably impure act. 
but scripture says it is the service of God. So this is that confidence that Luther has, that government has been established by God with the power of the sword to protect the good and to punish the wrongdoer. And this is important because Luther t- in Luther's day, you know, you had, you had the, the serfs, you had the government, basically. And he talks briefly about, like, families, which is another structure of society. But conglomerates, business, large businesses didn't really exist. You had artisans. You had, you know... There were some guilds. There were some guilds. So you kind of had the guilds. That's your business merchant economy. You had the family, and that's kind of an economy of its own. You had the church, which is an economy of its own. And then you had the nobles and the judges and the magistrates. And they were kind of an economy of their own. And there's almost this effort by the Radical Reformation to say the only thing of all of those economies you can ever exist in is the family and the church. But Luther wants to say you can be in the guilds. You can be in the guilds. You can be a shoemaker and you have a pure heart and say God has given me these gifts and now he's saying you can be a magistrate because that is also in a state of vocation and responsibility God has given. So yeah, we've got this and even in today there's the media, there's all these different vocations out there. And, and you can be holy in any one of them. Those, some of those vocations, many of these vocations that we, we all work in today didn't exist back then. But all of them are holy, according to Luther. So let's keep moving. Uh, Luther even gives scriptural backing to his. And, he, and Luther says in Romans 13.4, Paul calls the government which bears a sword God's servant. This is not its work and command, but this is not... Uh, its work and command, but God's work, which he imposes on it and demands from it. So there's like this, going back to that story about the judge who has to commit somebody to, to, to an execution. They're just doing their job. But uh, Luther says this is God at work. And, and uh, You kind of balance that work of a judge with what was just the previous beatitude we were talking about, blessed are the merciful, exactly. is that a judge doesn't do it with a, a rage and with an indignation and a quickness of the sword. There is a pause of patience that he must exercise as well. Luther then moves on to talking about what Christ means when he says, we will see God. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then you see immediately that you have a gracious God, for faith leads you up and opens the heart and will of God for you. There you will see sheer, superabundant grace and love. That is exactly what it means to see God, not with physical eyes, which no one can see him in this life, but with faith, which he sees his fatherly, friendly heart, where there's no anger or displeasure, a pure heart. Is the ambition of seeing God. And if you, Luther says, if you insist on seeing God as angry and wrathful, you're missing out. He says, anyone who regards him as angry is not seeing him correctly, but has pulled down a dark cloud over his face. But in scriptural, langu- in scriptural language, it, to see his face means to recognize him correctly as the gracious and faithful father on whom you can depend for every good thing. This happens only through faith in Christ. Think about the benediction, Lord, lift up your countenance uh, upon me. That is the language of look upon me in such a way that you will see me and so that I can see you. 
So pulling it all together, Luther, uh, according to Luther, blessed are those of a pure heart, for they shall see God, means we are, if we have faith, we will live contemplating God's law and gospel as we go through our day, regardless of our station, and we will see God as he truly is, full of grace and love. It is time for a beer break. All right. So today we feature from Upper Hand Brewery. Brewery. Upper Hand Brewery is there in the UP, Laughing Fish. It is a northern gold ale. It is a, a great, simple, uh, kind of brilliant with flavor, but not overpowering. It's just kind of your... It's a, it's a nice, crisp sm- beer. Yeah, I'd say it's very crisp. Uh, you know, while well, we got a beer break... Uh, Remember the we had the blueberry beer a couple of episodes. Yeah, ago? neither of us liked it. It wasn't aspirational. It was it was never going to succeed. I, 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 it wasn't I, just the execution. We just had no room of agreement for a blueberry to be a beer. I, and that was the only beer I think in all these episodes. It was the only beer I actually said I can't. I, I can't do it. I don't like it. And and so I, I have I had to buy a four pack of it. Yeah, right? I bought a four pick. So you shared. You shared with me one of them. I, yep. And who else did you share with Mike? My wife. Maria. And, and what did she think of it? It's her favorite beer. So <laughs> she, she's, she loves it. And yeah, it, 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 she's, she's sort of a, uh, a wine, um, uh, like a, a, a cider, spi- uh, spice cider. She likes cider. ciders and yeah. sweet. Yeah, sort of a sweet sort of stuff. And, and so she enjoyed that. And so she, she really enjoys it. So th- there you go. We're not definitive. We are not the final word. We are not the final word. But if you want to enjoy Upper Hand Brewery, you can find it at uh, local grocery stores in Michigan. Oh, you can the- also head up to Escanaba, Michigan. <laughs> and uh, they have in their tap room Thursday, Friday, Saturday night uh, an opportunity to enjoy it there as well. Very good beer. And the, I guess the one thing, you know, this is, uh, this is a sponsored beer. This right. is a sponsored beer. So Upper Hand Brewery's marketing director uh, gave to us uh, several different beers to try, and this is one of them, and we think very positively about it. Delicious. Delicious. Let's go back to the Beatitudes. So then Luther turns his attention to the next Beatitude, which is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Luther says this applies to those people who both try to maintain peace in their own lives and promote peace between others. So, just like the rest of the Beatitudes, Luther then discusses how this needs to be done in in society. And he starts out by briefly outlining the requirements of a just war. And as he's describing a just war, one thing is, he doesn't say, just because you have a just cause, you have to go to war. Uh, He says there is a great value in making war very rare. Luther says, uh, therefore, anyone who claims to be a Christian and a child of God not only does not start war or unrest, but he also gives help and counsel on the side of peace wherever, wherever he can, even though there may have been a just and adequate cause for going to war. If one has tried everything and nothing helps, and then he has to defend himself to protect his land and people, then go to war. So just war for Luther starts at defense... But even before you defend yourself, you first seek to promote peace. 
And then Luther goes on to talk about things on a personal level. And he says, this also means that if you are a victim of injustice or and violence, you have no right to take the advice of your foolish head and immediately start getting even and hitting back. You are, but you are to think it over, to bear it and have peace. And then he says, instead, you have the law and government in your country from which you can seek legitimate redress. It is, it is ordained to guard against such things and to punish them. Therefore, anyone who does violence to you sins not only against you, but also against the government itself. For the order and command to maintain peace was given to the government and not to you. So vengeance and punishment are not included in just war. Right. Right, and it's it's also the 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 mercen not mercenaries um, vigilantism is is not just that is you 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 go and you try to work through the systems God has put in place to make things right. So in the background, this is fifteen thirty one. The peasants' revolt has already happened. Yes. So. In the 1520s, uh, there are peasants that revolt based on some inspiration from Luther. And he calls upon the nobles to bring down judgment against the peasants and their revolt. Then there is this uh, frightening reality that the nobles are too violent. And so some of the Beatitudes commentary, I think, is written in that context of knowing both the hunger and desire for vengeance and punishment that can be experienced uh, in his age, but then also this, the, this need for judgment. And so he emphasizes that there is a responsibility, if you are a victim of injustice and violence, that you don't just become foolish and start getting hot and getting even and hitting back, you have to think about it and you have to try to bear it up, suffer a little bit and bring peace. But it's not like you have to pretend that nothing happened, but trust that God has given recourse for your injury through the, through the court, through the judge, through others. Try to work through the systems God has put in place. There is in the Concordia Theological Journal, which comes out of uh, Fort Wayne, the latest uh, issue has a whole article on whether a Christian can use the courts to bring uh, judgment against another. And in the article, it talks about how Luther said it should be the ambition of every Christian to avoid going to the courts. And that, uh, that especially between two Christians, we should always be able to reconcile ourselves. We should try. Yeah. We should try. And that yes. uh, the courts should never be that first move. Neither should war. Right. <laughs> the first move should be peace. Yeah. And peace isn't the absence of conflict. It is the ambition towards reconciliation. So that's, you know, and, and, you know but we want, if that doesn't work, if you can't make that work, then that's what the courts are there for. One way to think about peacemaking is he, he says later in the sermon, he says, all this comes from a shameful demonic filth which naturally clings to us, that everyone enjoys hearing and telling the worst about his neighbor, and it tickles him to see a fault in someone else. And, and he, he describes that character of sin that's always looking for conflict, always looking for vengeance, always looking for difficulty. And always looking to place yourself above the next guy. That 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 pridefulness that is always trying to, oh, you're really screwed up here and I'm better than you there and whatever. 
So, so let's get back to this. So Luther says there's two kinds of peace, peacemakers. First, there's the government that maintain peace through administering law and order. And in the second place, to pious citizens and neighbors who with their salutary and good tongues adjust, reconcile, and settle quarrels and tensions between husband and wife or between neighbors brought on by evil and poisonous tongues. These are the people that, who are truly doing Christ's work. And Luther says, This is what Christ our Lord has done for us by reconciling us to the Father, bringing us into his favor, daily representing us, and interceding on our behalf. You do the same. Be a reconciler and mediator between your neighbors. It is not weak to seek peace. Right. So Luther then finishes up by outlining the proper way to handle it when we cannot manage to bring peace, when someone will not stop doing evil. And this is all following Christ's teachings in Matthew 18. First, you go to the person who's doing the evil. And when the first method does not work, Luther says, tell it to those who have the job of punishing father and mother, master and mistress, mistress, burgomaster and judge. That is the right and proper procedure for removing and punishing a wrong. So you bring your your wrong, your injury, the thing you've experienced, when you haven't found reconciliation with the person who's harmed you, you don't then have invitation to go bang him over the head. You now need to go to whom God has given that authority to. One of the most interesting parts of this discussion, that at least from my perspective, was when Luther finds himself in the situation and he starts talking about why he had to attack the Pope and the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And so I pulled that out here and it says, when the sin is evident and becomes too widespread or does public damage as the Pope's teaching has, then there is no longer time to be quiet, but only to defend and attack, especially for me and others in public office whose task it is to teach and to warn everyone. I have the commission and charge as a preacher and a doctor to see to it that no one is misled so that I may give account of it at the last judgment. Luther took seriously his title as doctor. Um, We see the role of a medical doctor as to diagnose, to develop a prognosis and give a treatment towards healing. A doctor of theology has a responsibility, he believes, to diagnose where there is grievous sin, to provide a prognosis if this sin continues. Here is the danger that you bring yourself to, and here is the prognosis if you trust in the gospel. Um, And so it seems formal at times, but when you look back and you might read um, commentaries that say earlier than the 20th century, he's always referred to as Dr. Luther. Dr. Martin Luther, Dr. Luther. And this doctor there uh, somewhat comes from the European model that you, you recognize and respect the postgraduate work a person has done. But even more than this European respect for academics, it's about his vocation as a doctor of theology, that he takes that job seriously. You know, it's interesting for me, I have my doctorate in preaching, and I find it... Um, helpful to provide encouragement and support to others who are preaching. Uh, uh, Before COVID, I developed this kind of small group of pastors in the area. We would meet together at a local brewery and we would just uh, talk about the task of preaching. And we would even have each other bring in sermons and we would help and encourage each other. And I kind of see that as a responsibility of uh, someone who has this doctorate in preaching to bring about that task of uh, helping to diagnose where there's failures in preaching, provide prognosis for help in preaching. So when Luther says, blessed are the peacemakers, and someone says, well, why are you so obstinate and angry? He says, well, 
I have a charge. I have a commission to make sure people aren't misled. I am not seeking vengeance or punishment. I'm seeking that the truth get heard. And one of the things Luther took a lot of uh, comfort in was in the knowledge that he never wanted to become a doctor. He he wanted he was actually sort of just like he was. He felt he was pushed to become a monk. He was eventually pushed to become a, a, a doctor. Yeah, it was Staupitz who told him to go to the University of Erfurt and get his graduate degree so that he could bring greater contribution to the church. And he was just fine being a, a local priest. And then Staupitz said, nope, we, we need this. You have these gifts. You have to use them. And, and so he took a lot of comfort in that, that this wasn't something he went and ch- you know chased down. That this was pushed upon him and that he, he felt that this was God's way of saying, this is not something you do for you. This is something you do for me. And so that was in his realm of vocation. And he's not, he's saying it's not for everybody to do this, but when the commission and when the charge is there, you have to learn how to speak up. We now have two more Beatitudes. They're related. So we're going to kind of compress them together. So the last two Beatitudes are related, like, like, like Evan Savitt, and it's, uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Luther pulls it together. As Luther has walked us through the Beatitudes, he's tried to make a case that a Christian life will be tough. A Christian's way of life and the spiritual fruits under the uh, under these two headings. First, that in his own person he is poor, troubled, miserable, needy, and hungry. Second, that in relation to others he is useful, kind, merciful, and peaceful man who does nothing but good works. In all the preceding Beatitudes, Luther has talked about how this is done. If we are only responsible for ourselves, we are poor, mournful, weak, merciful, and peaceful. But if we have a responsibility to others, either as a head of a household or as a member of the government or some other leadership position, we will need to be ready to punish evil. So if we are successful, Christ has a promise for us. Although the Christian is full of good works, even toward his enemies and rascals, for all this he must get this reward from the world. He is persecuted and runs the risk of losing his body, his life, and everything. Luther then clarifies, The reason is this, the devil is a wicked and angry spirit. He will not and cannot stand seeing a man enter the kingdom of God. And if the man undertakes to do so, he blocks the way himself, arousing and attempting every kind of opposition he can summon. If you want to be God's child, therefore, prepare yourself for persecution. This is, I don't know, the, the, the prize... At the end of the race, if you are successful, Christ has a promise for you. Right. You will be persecuted. And you will run the risk of losing your body, your life, everything. That is your prize. So why do, why do I want to participate in this? Right. You know, it's funny because especially in today's day and age, you know, we there's a run towards comfort. There's a run towards ease and leisure. And there's this thought that anything that makes me uncomfortable, anything that's difficult, anything that bears a burden on me is something I have to learn how to get rid of. I want to just get rid of the drama. Well, there is this certain that Luther has that if you are bringing the righteousness of Christ into this world, you will face the devil. And that's, that's very true. So what he, Luther then makes a, a distinction here. And he says, these are, uh, it's important to have 
recognize these caveats. There are, this is about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and those who are persecuted on my account. The my in there. Like, if we just say it out loud, it's capitalized pronoun referencing to Jesus. Right, on Christ's account. Not on Luther's account. <laughs> right, right, right. And Luther comments, the devil and wicked people also have to suffer persecution. So one murderer persecutes another, but this does not make them blessed. This statement applies only to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. See to it, therefore, that you have a genuine divine cause for whose sake you suffer persecution. And this is sort of where, you know, he sort of brings in that uh, very common idea in all of philosophy that life is a life of suffering. It doesn't, the Buddhists believe it, the Hindus believe it, everybody believes that life is hard. So how do you make it through that suffering? Here's a quote that Luther says, Who cares if a crazy prince or a foolish emperor fumes in his rage and threatens me with his sword, fire, or the gallows? Just as long as my Christ is talking dearly to my heart, comforting me with the promises that I am blessed, that I am right with God in heaven, and that all the heavenly host and creation call me blessed. So, All religions may talk about suffering, but Luther says, here's how I make it. I know that Christ is talking dearly to my heart. Exactly. Exactly. So then we have, if Christ, if if we can do all this, Christ does have that promise. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's the, that's the reward that we're waiting for. So this finishes up the discussion on the Beatitudes, where he outlines both the role of a Christian in their personal life and in their vocation. And we hope that you have seen through these Beatitudes the confidence that these Beatitudes speak to every Christian in their daily lives and vocations, and that your your faith is not just lived in the kingdom of the Spirit that resides in the church where the gospel is proclaimed, but that your faith lives in the kingdom of the sword where your righteousness for the care and benefit of your neighbor should be at work in your heart and in your works. So the, you know, we spent two episodes on this. It's a lot of time. And I think we went a little over today, probably. Uh, you know, and even here, there's a lot we left out. And so really, if you're going to go buy one copy of Luther's works, volume 21. And volume 21 is not only helpful for these last two episodes, but for our next episode on the Magnificat, which is also in Volume 21. That's right. So Luther's commentary on the Magnificat. I have a Bible study coming out through Sola Publishing. It'll probably, uh, I'm hoping it'll be coming out at about the same time that we'll be recording our next episode of next episode. So keep an eye out for that. On Sola marketing, they talk about that synergy. Uh, And it's purely. It was supposed to be out a couple months ago, and there's some mistakes, so it's just pure uh, pure luck. So, so uh, just keep an eye out for that. But also, you know, the uh, Luther's Works 21 is a great book. Uh, you can find it at cph.org, uh, which stands for Concordia Publishing House. Also, if you have Logos, L-O-G-O-S dot com, uh, that's a, a type of software for reading theological books. You can buy it that way as well. Uh, as we were going through this podcast, I've got my laptop open in front of me. I've got my Logos Bible software here, and I've got Logos uh, open with a uh, 
volume 21 and I highlight different things, uh, yellow for things of highlight, green for things that are about growth, red where there's like daggers and blood at work, uh, where he might be talking about their cruisations with their fast. So uh, you don't have to just rely on paper to see it. This finishes our episode of uh, Grace on Tap. What are some thanks we have? Well, I'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity to do this with my friend Mike. Uh, we hope that you share some of the joy we have. Maybe write a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, share it with someone else. Uh, if someone, I see this like almost every week. Someone will say, I've got a big drive coming up. Is there a podcast I should listen to? I don't want to be the only one that writes in the comments, you should listen to Grace on Tap. To our listeners, you should also be telling everyone to listen to Grace on Tap. I hope you get a lot out of it. You can contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com or catch us on our website, graceontap-podcast.com or uh, we also have something on uh, on Facebook. Uh, so let's, uh, I think that does it. Till next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.